morning, church family. It's a joy to see you all in church this morning. I trust you're at 2 Samuel chapter 6 already, and, and we're going to jump right in as soon as we pray. So let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you for gathering us here, gathering us around your word, gathering us in a moment around your table. We humbly ask God that you would grant life to our existence by your word. Apart from your life-giving spirit through your word, we are nothing but dead corpses destined for hell. So by your word, bring us to life, encourage us in godliness, and conform us into the image of your Son. We pray this to the glory of his name. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 6, I want to begin by giving a bit of background because we're moving in large sweeps through the life of David. And so we sort of have to fill in the blanks before we get to the passage for the day. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 2, David was formally established as the king of Judah. Now Judah, you might know from the history of God's people, is the southern kingdom. He was established back in 2 Samuel chapter 2 as the king of Judah. Shortly after, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, he is established as the king also of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so David unifies God's people in these two acts. Immediately after being set up as the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and hence unifying God's people, immediately you'll see that the Philistines come on the attack, right? Well, there's probably a preachable point in that. Right when God has you exactly where he wants you to be, you can expect an attack from the evil one. That's not a, a point in my notes, right? It's just for free. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, and I want to pull out one point before we move into our passage this morning of 2 Samuel chapter 6. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines come upon David to attack him not once, but twice. The first time, in verse 18... Philistines come upon him to take him down, and David inquires of the Lord what to do. Look at verse 19. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? The Lord responded to David in this first case with a gracious assurance that his enemies would be delivered accordingly into his hand. Then in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 22, just a couple of verses later, the Philistines come up upon David again to attack him. Now I want you to notice that in this case, David took nothing for granted, but he went back once again and asked the Lord what to do. And from the Lord, he received a different answer. Do you notice that? In verse 19, the first time, the Lord said, go up and take them head on. The second time, in verse 24, the Lord said, do not go up and take them head on, but skirt around behind, right, with a different instruction. Now, this is actually a really important point for us as Christians these days. Even at moments when you find yourself in um, times that are identical to times in the past, do not presume upon the Lord. Ask him again. Return back to his word for instruction. Go to him in prayer and seek the wise counsel of other people. You cannot assume that God will always have you respond similarly in similar circumstances because the whole point 
is that you and I might grow in reliance and trust upon the Lord. And so twice the Philistines attacked, and twice David sought the Lord. Well, that brings us up to 2 Samuel chapter 5, and our passage this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to read about the ark returning back to Jerusalem, but in order to sort of figure out why the ark wasn't there in the first place, you have to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4. It was during the time of Eli, if you remember, wicked Eli and his even wickeder sons, that the Ark of the Covenant had actually been captured in battle by the Philistines. This many years ago, um, God's people went to battle with the Philistines in a place called Ebenezer. The Philistines defeated God's people and captured the very Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was so important to God's people. Back in Exodus chapter 25, the ark was constructed by Moses. And if you go back to Exodus 25, you'll discover the ark of the covenant was a wooden box that was gilded in gold. It had a simple but elaborate lid on the top that actually had two angels facing one another. Now, if you can picture this in your mind... It's probably less because you've read Exodus 25 and more because you've watched Indiana Jones. But do you know what I mean by the Ark of the Covenant? So the Ark of the Covenant was constructed to be the, well, well to, to, to at least represent the promises and covenants that God had made with his people Israel. Okay? Moses was instructed to build it. And he was instructed to build the tabernacle to house it. It was right at the very center of God's physical manifested presence on earth. So the Ark of the Covenant was very important. And the Israelites were instructed to carry it into battle as a reminder to them that the battle belonged to the Lord, right? Their only job was to trust him. And when they did so, they couldn't lose. So powerful was this ark as a reminder and as the manifest presence of God on earth. This ark was a reminder. It was the manifestation of God's presence. But it was also a foreshadowing. Because within the tabernacle, once a year, the blood of a spotless lamb would be sprinkled on the mercy seat the hilasterion in Greek, the, the part that was on the lid in between, the part where it was believed that God's presence sat on the ark. And in that sprinkling of the blood of a spotless lamb, God's people saw foreshadowed their salvation in Jesus Christ. So this is the ark that was missing from amongst God's people it had been captured by the Philistines. It was shortly thereafter brought back. But this ark had then spent 50 years off in the remote woods, being ignored and forgotten in the household of Abinadab. And then David becomes king. And David 
we know is filled with zeal for the glory of the Lord God. That's what drives his every action. He wants the very presence of the glory of God at the center of God's people in the middle of their lives. That's what drove him as a king. And so we come to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Look at verses 1 to 4. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose with, and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Can you see the picture now? And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. This is the moment that we're going to look at today, and, and as we move through this chapter, we're going to encounter two people in particular. Two people who are going to show you what not to do in the presence of God. Okay, these are going to be lessons in negative, lessons in relief. Uh, Christian man or woman, learn from other people's mistakes. We're going to look at two people. But before we get to those two people, I want to just look at these first four verses. Verses 1 to 4. Because in them, you are going to see what happens when there is a good desire. A desire for a good thing but it's carried out and executed in the wrong way. You know, it's possible to want the right thing or even to believe the right thing for the wrong reasons and actually be wrong, right? Well, that's what we're going to see in these first four verses. David, who sought after nothing but the glory of God, and yet, in returning the ark back to Jerusalem, the middle of God's people, he employs his own means to bring about God's plan. Look at verse 3. This is where it all goes wrong. They carried the ark of God, how? On a new cart. That's right. On a new cart. And immediately, if you're reading through this, you should see a giant red flag. Because back in Exodus 25, God was clear not only about how the ark was to be constructed, a box made of wood, a lid with cherubim, the mercy seat, um, but he also said that this ark was to have rings, one on each of the four corners, so that poles could be passed through. And God was instructing his people that this ark that was the representation of his presence physically on earth in the middle of his people was to be carried on the shoulder of men. Never carted around by ox and ass. You see, ox and ass are not worthy of bearing the glory of God. Human beings are. And so right off the top of chapter 6, we see that although David had the right intent, he was using the wrong means to bring it about. It, th this passage begins with 
disobedience. David had the best of intent. But maybe your mom used to tell you when you were a kid that the road to hell is paved with good intent. Good intent with disobedience. You know, this is not just a problem for David back in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. It's a problem for Christians and for churches today. So many churches who are jealous for the glory of God in their own community, but they're employing not God's methods, but their own methods to try to bring it about. Do you know what I mean? It's as though we are collectively faced with this same problem of seeking to usher the ark of God's presence back into a place of prominence, but through our disobedience, missing the point in the first place, because it was all about obedience. Can you think of ways that Christians and churches do this and go wrong? Well, as a pastor here at St. George's for 18 years, I've seen many different trends come and go in the North American church. Trends that could be thought of as new carts intended to usher the glory of God back in, but they're actually just willful, sinful disobedience. Perhaps you've heard of something called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is when so-called preachers tell you that when you come to faith in Christ, God is going to exclusively bless you with monetary, financial blessings, and he will ensure that if you have enough faith, you will always be healed according to your plan and not his, and it will only ever be a prosperous way. Well, this is a new cart that churches try to employ to bring about what should be a good end, which is the glory of God. And it's wrong. It's wrong. It's set for disaster. Others have been the seeker-sensitive movement, right? Where the cart that's that employed to try to bring about the glory of God in, in its own way, it's sinful, but... They, they say, well, if we can just try to make the gospel more palatable to the average person in society by capitulating on social issues and never preaching sin and never preaching wrath and, and just making the gospel message more acceptable, well, that's just a new cart, right? A big problem. I could, I could go on. I could list others. There are, there's the problem of the new cart of cheap grace, where churches say we're only ever going to preach Jesus Christ as Savior and never as Lord. There, there are other problems. Certainly we see these two today. The one is the cart of Christian nationalism. Where churches think that they can usher the glory of God back into a central place in the lives of God's people by, in an unholy way, blending church and state. Christian nationalism is just another cart. Or what about the cart of critical race theory? What about the cart of trying to see the world through those lens, right? Oppressor, oppressed, trying to bring the solutions to bear. This is the problem of a new cart. The problem of, of a new cart extends to things like social justice gospel. 
where the church says we're trying to bring the glory of God back into a central place of prominence in the life of God's people. And we're going to do so not with the simple gospel message, but by employing social means to bring about justice. And look, friends, just aside, we would all agree that a more just society is a good thing and something that Christians ought to seek. The problem is social justice has now become divorced from its foundation. It's become the foundation instead of the outworking of a Judeo-Christian foundation. And when social justice is divorced from a foundation of Judeo-Christian principles, then it just becomes morally relativistic. Well, how do you define justice? How do you define it? And it becomes a new cart. It's sinful. This problem of a new cart happens in the church every time that secular methods become more alluring than God's word. When you see churches and Christians appealing primarily to new carts, it's because they've lost confidence that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So as we read this account, we as Christians are reminded and warned that God's work must be done in God's ways. So let's jump into our two people. Verses 5 to 15, the first one we're looking at is this guy named Uzzah. Verse 5 begins with this joy-filled celebration. The ark of God is returning to Jerusalem. It is believed that this presence of the ark back in the city of David will usher in a new age of obedience and devotion to the Lord God. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God to hold it, for the oxen stumbled. So so the ark is coming back to Jerusalem. Everyone's partying in front of it. They're all happy and joyful. Um, The oxen stumble a bit. The cart on which the ark never should have been in the first place wiggles. And Uzzah stretches out his hand, we're told in verse 6, to stop it from falling over. In verse 7, we're told in a handful of words of something dreadful and horrible. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside, of the, beside the ark. Uzzah is struck dead by God for his error. That's what Scripture tells us. All right, so... So you're reading along in this, you're a casual Bible reader, and you're reading along, you don't see it coming, and all of a sudden you read this, and you're like, what? This really came out of nowhere. Everyone's happy, it's going well, the thing, the the cart wiggles, the the ark looks like it's going to fall, and Uzzah, boom, struck dead, gone. As a reader today, you read that, and you think, that's unfair, or unjust, 
Uzzah was only trying to help out. Maybe you would argue he was doing what was natural. So you can imagine yourself in this situation. You think it would be an unconscious, unthought-out response. Something's falling. You like put your hand out to prevent it, right? Verse 8. We're told that you and I are not alone in those feelings, but David himself was angry. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. But we're told in verse 9 that very quickly David's heart changes from anger to fear of the Lord. We're told that David realizes in short order that he's not even worthy to steward the presence of God manifest in the ark. And so in verses 10 to 11, the um, ark parade that was going back to the city of David stops at the household of Obed-Edom. The, the, the ark is unloaded and placed in his household and left there for three months. Turns out to be really good news for him because his life flourishes as a result of it. But there's a couple of things I want to pull from this account of Uzzah. The first one is this necessary question. Was it unfair or unjust for God to strike down Uzzah? And the answer is no. Because in God striking down Uzzah, we see the importance of trusting in God. Let me tell you what I mean. What was Uzzah's sin? Well, if you read this passage closely, you have to conclude that Uzzah's sin was the belief that God needed a hand. Look, any time you and I put our own cleverness ahead of God's clear instruction, we commit the sin of Uzzah. Let me, let me give you two examples. Have you ever as a Christian made plans, charged ahead and done them, and then retrospectively asked God to bless your plans? That's the sin of Uzzah. Let me give you another one. Have you ever found yourself in a polite setting and an uncomfortable topic comes up and you decide, rather than preaching the clear word of God, that God actually has a bit of a PR problem and you're going to help him by tidying up his message a little? That's you thinking that God needs your help. That's you sticking out your hand to help the Lord God in disobedience. See, these and so many other moments are times when the ark of God appears in your eyes like it's about to wobble and you assess that it needs your helpful hand. Look, don't forget the ark would have never been in this precarious position apart from Israel's disobedience. It was, it was Israel's sin that put the, the, the ark on a cart instead of on poles. And so here, the presenting sin of Uzzah is this desire to help God out with his strength, with his cleverness. But the deeper sin is actually upstream from this moment. 
The deeper sin that we see with Uzzah is a collective failure to trust and obey God at his word. Well, the same is true for us. So much of our trouble, so many of our sins come from an earlier commitment of a lack of obedience or trust that has put us in a situation where sin seems to cascade like a snowball rolling down a hill, right? Like an avalanche gaining, gaining more momentum. Uzzah would have never been in a position to stick his hand out and help God if the ark had been on poles like God instructed. Well, maybe you'd look at your own life and you'd consider your own situation and you'd say, I find myself in a hell of a situation. Well, maybe look back upstream because there may in fact be earlier sin of failure to trust and obey and the call is to repent and trust and believe. So the first thing, is, is this judgment upon Uzzah unjust? The answer is no. He should have trusted. I want to put a really fine point on this this morning, St. George's. God does not need your help or your rescue. The only thing God requires of you is your trust and your obedience. Is God unfair or unjust in this? No. Uzzah should have trusted. The second thing, this is not unjust or unfair because in this moment, we catch a glimpse of how great is our salvation. You might have heard this account of Uzzah and thought, okay, I get it. He disobeyed the Lord God. He thought God needed his help. He stuck out his hand. But really, does that deserve death? Like, maybe this is just a minor infraction. Maybe this is just a little picadillo, a little sin light, and it, God should have just slapped him on the wrist. Why death? Well, this, like all disobedience to God, deserves death. Because it's a reminder of the holiness of God. You know, friends, I think far too often we play fast and loose with the holiness of God. We are functional Marcionites, right? We separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. I hear Christians all the time saying things like, Man, I really like the New Testament God, but that God of the Old Testament, all that wrath and anger and judgment, I could live without that. We, we try to ignore the holiness of God and its demands. Maybe we sing songs that sound like we're singing them to our pal Jesus. We sing songs that you could replace God with your high school girlfriend and the song would remain the same. Because we've neglected the holiness of God. And apart from the 
dreadful, terrifying, deadly holiness of God, you can't make sense of the Old Testament. It doesn't make any sense. Why does Uzzah get struck down dead? If you don't have a grasp on the holiness of God, you can't get it. And if you ever lose sight of the holiness of God, you will lose the backdrop of your own salvation. Because in the New Testament, we're told that what God saves us from is the wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus dies to deliver you from the wrath of God. It's God absorbing his own wrath into himself and paying the penalty of death that all who sin and disobey deserve. Uzzah stretches out his hand to touch the ark and he's struck dead. And it's just. It's what he deserved. Now you might think, okay, Artie, that's an Old Testament phenomenon. That's how the holiness of God is lived out in the Old Testament. It all, uh, a, a switch flipped and everything changed in the New Testament. All right, if you think that and if you're clinging to that, don't read the account of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. Two people who sinfully misrepresented their heart before the Lord and before the Christian community, and God struck them dead. So when you read these accounts of God striking people dead for their sin, you should not decry the, unjust, the injustice. Instead, you should be reminded of Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 12, where we are told, our God is a consuming fire. He's not to be trifled with. If you even come close to him, you will surely be consumed and die. Your sin, like Uzzah, demands no less. And so you read this account and you see yourself in Uzzah and you, and you can easily see how you would get caught up in that moment on the cart and do the exact same thing that he did. You see that. But maybe it's harder for you to accept that you deserve the same outcome. Passages like this one remind us that we cannot come close to the ark. We cannot approach the presence of God through our own means by reaching out our own sinful hands. God is holy and his holiness demands death. Friends, when you read a passage like this one in the Old Testament, it's an invitation to take your own salvation more seriously. Because you and I have a Savior. We have a Savior whose blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. He has satisfied the just wrath of God that demanded Usa's death and demands yours, satisfied, paid in full. 
And so you and I can now not only reach out and touch the presence of God, but we can come boldly to the throne of heavenly grace as a well-loved child would come to his father's knee. Uzzah is struck dead in the presence of God, and you and I would be too. But we have an advocate. We have a mediator. This account of Uzzah reminds us of our sin and how great is our salvation. So this first character, Uzzah, he shows us that we ought to trust and obey. That God doesn't need our help or cleverness. And this character, Uzzah, reminds us of how great is our salvation. We deserve death. And yet, in Christ, we can boldly approach the throne. Second character is Michael, verses 16 to 23. This is our second lesson from this passage. So the ark is making its way to Jerusalem after spending three months in the house of Obed-Edom. After three months, the death of Usa is a distant memory for most. Like, oh yeah, remember that happened? Okay, whatever. And now there's dancing in the streets of the city of David, dancing in the streets of Jerusalem. And, and I love this picture. It's always been one of my favorites. Of noble warrior King David leading the dancing troop. We're told that he danced in a linen ephod. His wife, Michael, accuses him of dancing in a way that is, um, you know, unbecoming a king. That he, she said he exposed himself. I don't know exactly what that means, but I imagine that maybe an ephod is something like those hospital gowns that you wear where your butt sticks out. And so David's leading the charge, dancing back into Jerusalem wearing an ephod. He's so delighted by the restored presence of the Lord in the midst of God's people. When was the last time that you felt so delighted at your salvation? When was the last time that you took stock of God's goodness to you in Jesus Christ and it moved you to make a jackass of yourself? You see, David was so overcome with joy that he didn't care what anyone else in the entire kingdom thought. He was dancing before an audience of one. Not everyone's happy about it. Look at verses 16 and 20. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Verse 20, And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today. You have to read that with a sarcastic tone. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Verses 21 to 22, David's response. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. See what he's saying? He's saying, I, I, I don't care who else was there. 
I was dancing before the Lord. Who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will abase, be abased in your eyes. David looks out, uh, sorry, Michael looks out the window. She looks down upon him and despises him. She values her own sense of family honor or dignity over the glory of the Lord God. And you got to remember, as scripture tells you, she is Saul's daughter, isn't she? Just a little too much of Saul in her. And David's answer, he says, woman, you haven't seen anything yet. Because David knows that there's true honor found in genuine, heartfelt delighting in the Lord. And that is especially the case when that delighting comes at the expense of the honor of men. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Perhaps there have been Michaels in your life who've disdained you for your joy in the Lord. Well, Michael, we're told, is struck barren. Now listen, barrenness is not always a judgment from God. But in Michael's case, it was. And so this ensured that the lineage of Saul would have no place in the lineage of the royalty of Israel. Even Michael is cut out. Now, interestingly, a couple of chapters, we're going to find out that David's royal issue would not come through Michael, Saul's daughter, but would actually come through Bathsheba, a story for another day. But when you read this story, this account of Michael, this second person in this chapter, you have to ask yourself, whose approval do you seek? Do you live trying to appease the crowds? Or do you respond to the joy of God's salvation before an audience of one? You know the old song, I'll cling to the old rugged cross. It's shame and reproach. Gladly bear. So there you have it. God doesn't need your help. He needs you to trust and obey. Any more is sin. Secondly, we see in the life of Michael, when you grasp the greatness of your salvation, you will be willing to be a fool in the eyes of the world. Look, I'd be remiss if I closed without pointing out one final gospel nugget. Okay? Where do you see Jesus? Well, David, we're told, dances in this ephod. Do you know what an ephod is? It's the garment of the priests of Israel. So, so, so gain the context here. The, the ark of God, his physical presence, his manifest, his manifest presence, is being restored to the people of God. Actually, more precisely, God's people are by this action being restored to the presence of God. 
And that's good for them. But it's joyful for David. And so in this dancing David in his ephod, we catch a glimpse of our greater high priest. Who in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's all loaded in this passage. We look to him. He's the only one who reconciles us to God so that we're not struck dead in his presence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in the account of the life of David, we catch glimpses of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the greater David. I pray, Lord, that our trust in him would be so great that we would find no cause, no reason to try to help with our cleverness, simply trust and obey. Grip our hearts with the joy of our salvation that we would willingly be called fools by the world. Knowing that we dance before you, not before Michael. We pray this in your name.